Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We've got lots of clinical athlete weightlifting and powerlifting certifications coming up, so check out the schedule for a course near you. This podcast can also be found on the website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. If the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. And on the show, I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist in Ontario, Canada. He's a strength coach and also runs an online powerlifting coaching company, and he's a competitive powerlifter himself. We also have John Flagg joining us on the show. John is an athletic trainer and the Wellness Director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He's the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, which is also in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, which is an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. We're also very, very excited to announce that we've just launched the clinical athlete online powerlifting coaching program and are taking athletes now. John and Jared are the head coaches leading that program. So if you want to get strong and stay healthy doing it, head over to the Clinical Athlete website, click on the online coaching tab, and you can schedule a time to talk to a coach to see if the program is appropriate for you. On this show, we are extremely honored and excited to welcome Peter Stillwell and Catherine Harmon. They are pain researchers. This was an amazing discussion on where we are with our current understanding of pain and how we can improve upon that understanding as clinicians. Hope you enjoy the show. Peter Stillwell and Catherine Harmon, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. We're happy to be here. So Peter and Catherine have co-authored a recent paper. The title of that paper is An Inactive Approach to Pain, Moving Beyond the biopsychosocial model, actually out of the word moving. It's just an inactive approach to pain beyond the psychosocial model. This paper is one that we actually discussed as a clinical athlete journal club topic. And we jumped at the chance to get Peter and Catherine on to dive into this even more because it's an amazing piece. I've, I read it again to prep for this show and it's the third time I've gone through it. And I, I just pick up something new, many things every single time I go through it. It's just jam-packed with information that is completely relevant to everybody who listens to this show. So we're going to we're gonna take a, de- a deep dive into this paper. But before we do that, can you both let our uh, tightly knit group of six listeners know a little bit more about your backgrounds and uh, what's led to your current interests and, and tracks? Catherine, do you want to go first? So I'm uh, Catherine Harmon. I'm a faculty member at the School of Physiotherapy at Dalhousie University and uh, been in this role for over 30 years. So it's uh, I've, I've been do- taught a lot of lectures, I guess, read a lot of papers. I My first degree is uh, in physiotherapy, so I'm, a phys- I'm still licensed to practice physiotherapy. Uh, and then I went on and did a master's degree in anatomy and neuroscience and studied nerve regeneration, and then a PhD in psychology, um, ec- uh, experimental psychology. I'm not a clinical psychologist, uh, and did a, a study on uh, pain and sleep, actually. Um, and then have uh, worked as a uh, faculty member for, uh, as I said, over 30 years. Um, And most of my research is around pain, uh, many different ways of looking at it. And I've circled right back to what really got me interested in the first place, which was when I was a clinician, uh, and trying to understand the experience that people have when they have persistent pain. So before uh, Peter uh, joined me at the school, I had started to do some work in um, 
in the relationship uh, of the physiotherapist uh, and the patient. And uh, we've looked at a lot of different elements, uh, including behavior change approaches and uh, some of the um, psychological techniques that uh, physiotherapists and chiropractors use. Um, and it's really led us to this paper and, and then beyond, which will be around uh, sort of applying some of these theoretical ideas that uh, are presented in the paper to decision-making and practice, uh, practice patterns. We're hoping to do a fair amount of postgraduate teaching uh, so to clinicians who are actually out in the field. Oh, that's Peter? awesome. Yeah, uh, I guess thanks again, Quinn, for your the kind words uh, regarding the paper. Uh, so in terms of my background, it's a bit of a eclectic uh, background. I started out uh, doing a Bachelor of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary, then went to Toronto, did a Doctor of Chiropractic uh, at CMCC, then continued on going east in Canada uh, to Halifax, uh, when I started clinical practice, I started right in in graduate school doing a master's of science under Catherine, who was just, just talking there. Uh, so that was in a program called Rehab Research in the School of Physiotherapy. And so fortunate during that time being able to uh, do some teaching with Catherine, work with uh, physiotherapy students, as well as other types of students across the university. Mm -hmm. uh, so simultaneously was practicing as a chiropractor while doing research at the same time. I finished up the master's and didn't, I guess I always joke and say I didn't suffer enough because I kept going on, uh, went straight into a PhD. So uh, still under under Catherine and also another supervisor, uh, Dr. Brenda Sabo, who's in the School of Nursing here at Dalhousie University. And uh, obviously have a committee as a PhD student as well. And I'm in my fourth year now, so kind of home stretch with, with that. And as Catherine mentioned, uh, interest in behavior change, interest in uh, the therapeutic alliance, uh, the communication between healthcare practitioners and patients experiencing persistent pain. And uh, yeah, most of the work's uh, theoretical that I do and qualitative, uh, just because it blends well with my questions regarding pain. Um, I initially thought I was going to come in as a researcher early on. I was like, oh, like I got all these quantitative questions. And as I learned more about methodology, uh, I realized I'm, I'm much better suited as a qualitative researcher based on the questions I have uh, and the subjective or first-person nature of, of pain, which is my interest. Hearing your guys' background with such an extensive balance of clinical and, and research, it's, it's no surprise now reading through this paper with how thorough it is. And again, the, the title of this paper that we're going to be talking about is an inactive approach to pain beyond the biopsychosocial model. You guys do a great job in the beginning of setting the stage by giving the reader a, a narrative on the history of pain. And if you would kind of set the stage for our discussion here, can you give the listeners a brief historical background on the construct of pain the research as it's evolved up to this point, and then within that, what was the impetus to write this paper and to create this model as an extension and a progression towards our understanding of pain? Easy question, right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> There's not going to be any easy uh, questions today, I don't think. Oh, yeah. darn. <laughs> yes. uh, See ya. It's, it's Friday at 4.45 here. Um, <laughs> right. I, 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 can, I, I just pulled up the paper here. Like, I can do my, uh, do my best to, like, hit on some of the main key things that we, we hit on, so the main theories over time uh, in the context of healthcare. You, you guys know this stuff well. Like, uh, I, I know you do, and so... Like after I kind of give a little brief snippet, like jump in, like and if there's anything to add, like for the, that would you think would benefit the the listeners, uh, go for it. Um, but I guess where we started with the paper was with Rene Descartes in the in the 17th century, which is like pretty standard. Uh, people people know Descartes; he's a philosopher, uh, very very influential um, in terms of in all different types of realms, even even outside of pain. And essentially what he, we discussed, he proposed initially on was that tissue damage was directly proportional to pain. Um, so a very kind of mechanical perspective on pain. 
And he also had this concept of dualism. So the idea that there was this uh, material body that somehow interacted with this immaterial mind or or immaterial soul. Um, and uh, really, that those ideas, that mechanical perspective and also that dualist perspective has endured to this day when we start to talk about pain. So very mechanical perspectives. Um, and if we can't find something very mechanical, we'll often say, oh, it's it's in the mind or it's it's psychosocial or psychological. So that was kind of where we really started off in the paper. Um, anything that you guys have to add in terms of Descartes and his influence? No, I think that's the struggle though, because I, it's like you said, it's still prominent in a lot of the teachings. And as I'm sure that you guys will allude to as you, as you move through the, the science of pain, we, we tend to fall back into that trap, even though the model progresses in construct and in theory, we tend to reduce it because it's easier to make sense of the world that way when we compartmentalize well, and tr and the other bit is, and that's absolutely right. And the other thing is that a lot of the pain presentation that we encounter in the clinical setting fits that model. You know, uh, acute pain, you, you can find some tissue that's sensitive and it uh, aligns with the, you know, the amount of damage aligns with the kind of experience the person is having. So that it's, it, it's based on, you know, observational science, Descartes, that's what he did. And there's a lot of truth to it. And that's why it, it, it's so persistent, I think. It's just that it's not that simple. <laughs> and uh, and so we have, uh, as Peter will say, you know, this lovely evolution of people just trying to uh, make sense of the parts that are harder to understand. And how has that evolution kind of taken shape now? I mean, where did we go from Descartes to, to where we are now? Yeah, so in the paper, we, we then jump to the 19th century, and we talk about how there's really been still an endorsement of a kind of a linear linear relationship between noxious stimuli and pain. So we reference a couple different theories, so specificity theory, intensity theory, pattern theory, and these are all still very kind of mechanical, physiological explanations for sensory input going up and the brain passively uh, having an output of pain. And uh, unfortunately, like during this time, patients were stigmatized if, if they couldn't find some sort of physical cause or there wasn't some sort of obvious noxious stimuli. Um, patients were sent to psychiatrists or they were viewed as psychologically disturbed uh, and, and, and really challenging for those people suffering from persistent pain that didn't have some sort of obvious uh, noxious stimuli attached to it that would drive nociception. Kind of within that, the evolution of this biopsychosocial model where we start to account for these things or at least acknowledge that they exist. Mm -hmm. Where would you say that's that started? At what point in this in this timeline and, and who is spearheading that concept? Yeah, so I guess from I'm, I'm looking at the paper where we kind of approached it. So we, I guess we went up to 1965 with Melzack and Wall. So this was a really kind of pinnacle point where they proposed that gate control theory, which I know you guys are, are well aware of. It's commonly taught in, in different schools, uh, regardless of the rehab profession. So physiotherapy, chiropractic, medicine, you'll hear that all the time. And what was really interesting about their 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 theory was that there was actually modulation uh, or, or gating of nociception at the spinal cord. And also they suggested that the brain actually has an influence as well. It's not just a, a, a passive organ. It actually can exert these anti-nociceptive uh, effects or that top-down inhibition. So it really started to explain these unusual situations uh, where, where nociception has been modulated, right? And I... It, it wasn't until, to get to your question, it wasn't until the 60s still, I guess, around that time, and then 1977, that pinnacle paper that George Engel published. But around that same time, that's where the biopsychosocial model started to develop. 
Um, but as as we'll discuss, it's it's not until very recently that it's really been picked up uh, in the context of, say, physiotherapy, um, even though it's been around since the, the 60s and more formally 1977. I think it's important to create this this narrative in the timeline, you know, the understand the construct of the history of this. I can say that this a lot of the, the students now compared to even, you know, I've only been out for six years, but I think the the understanding of pain has broadened and improved. And I think the curriculum has gotten better. And I think students are talking are talking about this model, this biopsychosocial model more. And I would say in our biased community, we that's generally the standard that we use to understand the construct of pain. But I mean, in the title of your paper, Beyond the Biopsychosocial Model, there are inherent limitations to any model. And and there's a reason that we're attempting to extend it and progress it. So I'd like to hear your thoughts, both of your thoughts on the limitations of the biopsychosocial model, not necessarily in construct or maybe in construct, but more so in how we tend to interpret it and implement it in practice. Yeah, uh, Catherine, did you want like I, I, I was can just jump gonna, in or? Yeah, I'll let you uh, pick up all the pieces that I don't say. <laughs> um, but I, I think the other bit is that although um, Angle, you know, had this this uh, um, model, a lot of people were getting to it in a lot of different ways. So, um, you know, it's not really that long ago that the the flag system started around pain, you know, the black and the blue and the red and the yellow and the green. Um, and the yellow flags were psychosocial flags, right? So we've been talking about it a lot of different ways. And uh, I think the, the reason why the biopsychosocial model tends to hang together and stick with us a little bit, kind of like Descartes, is that it, it sort of clearly says you know it's more than um the the uh, the um uh, linear um dualistic way of thinking about it you know there's pain uh, and there's the, you know the descartes uh, model is what i'm trying to say it's clearly more than that there's a psychological element there's a social element so i think that's what is attractive about it rather than a complex theory that maybe you know takes is difficult to describe and to grab a hold of so so i it will be with us for a long time and I, and I, there's a lot of good in it right there's a lot of good in it and that's we're not trying to suggest that we need to throw the whole thing out um uh, we are just extending uh, through uh, the work of other, uh, on top of the work of others, or using the work of others, um, the idea of uh, a, a, just another kind of way of putting into words and it, with examples and with explanations that are um, built on science and philosophy. Uh, another way of, of of looking at pain. So so it's not we're not saying biopsychosocial is no good. We want that to be really clear. There are some challenges um, with it, and uh, and that is why we're offering an, a, another way of looking at it. So maybe Peter, you can maybe review what we said in the paper about the the the, the drawbacks. Yeah, uh, I think you brought up such great points, too. And it's the same with the biomedical model, right? It's like you don't just totally toss all that foundation once you, you go to the biopsychosocial foundation, right? It's You, you just update certain pieces of it and try to be, I, I, I think Quinn in your journal club, you say just try to be less wrong, right? Um, and, and try to update, update things. So, uh, yeah, and I think part of it kind of came off harsh, especially with the, the title, Um which is a bit provocative. And I know some people are like, they, they see that and they're like, damn it. Like I would just got a handle on this biopsychosocial <laughs> right. model. That's what the New students in our form. Yeah. That's what they're saying. They're like, Oh, don't tell me this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not nothing new again. Not something new again. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know where you find these. They, they were bright, like super like critical thinkers, like such an amazing, like I was hyped that they liked the paper and they were, they were, they were thinking about how they can apply it. And, um, I should really say like the, when this paper, like when we published it, the goal wasn't to go to it, to go to clinicians, 
that wasn't the, that wasn't the plan. It was to lay out a theoretical academic foundation, which we would then strip down uh, less jar- less kind of philosophical jargon, and then bring it to to clinicians. And we, I thought that we we're going to have to have all these. KT strategies, knowledge translation strategies, and and to get it in the hands of clinicians. But it's been a couple of months, and people have already jumped on it and are applying it. And I'm like, like some of these people, I'm like, you you're applying it better than I could. Like, <laughs> like uh, which which I found interesting. But uh, back to your 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 question, right? So, what are some of these limitations that we suggest in the in the paper? I guess number one is we argue that it really lacks a strong theoretical foundation, um, especially when it pertains to the phenomenology of pain. So that meaning that first person or subjective experience, that uh, really valuing that that narrative that the patient has. So the biopsychosocial model doesn't explicitly have a theoretical foundation with that. And we're not the first people to say that. Others have, have said it, but uh, we, we kind of built on, on those ideas. Um, and there's other components, uh, contemporary views related to perception that aren't, uh, inherently embedded in that biopsychosocial model as proposed by Engel. And I guess the, the biggest probably part of the paper that we, uh, in terms of limitations, we talk about practical application, how, uh, really because of that lack of theoretical foundation, it's extremely difficult to start to apply in a meaningful, meaningful way, or, or you can apply it, but potentially we could optimize how it's applied if we actually have an extension or, or these other type of theoretical underpinnings. So we give a couple examples of, of kind of what we see in terms of these biopsychosocial proponents doing, including myself not too long ago. So we, we even published a paper, I think it was like 2017 that was part of my master's, like, uh, I think we call it like contemporary biopsychosocial exercise prescription for low back pain. It was challenging core stability and talking about context. And really, we're advocating the biopsychosocial model uh, quite, quite strongly. And we've shifted our views, or at least I have quite a bit uh, uh, since then. Um, and so we argue that there's these individuals that propose uh, that use the VPS model in a very reductionist way. So they they ultimately end up saying, oh, well, pain is in the brain. It's an output of the brain and uh, really have this kind of disembodied view of, of pain that doesn't really match our, our contemporary views of, of perception. And then we also talk about how people <laughs> end up actually being dualist almost in, in a way where they say, oh, well, if we can't find the biological factors, these mechanical factors that explain pain, it must be psychosocial or it must be psychogenic uh, in nature. It must be in the mind. So you have like prominent definitions, which you guys are, are, I know are well aware of, like the IASP, International Association for the Study of Pain. Uh, they essentially say as a part of their definition to this day that if, if, if there is no kind of physiological explanation, the pain is psychogenic. Uh, it's essentially a dualist view. And it, it, I think it really needs to be updated and, well, I'm not the only person. There's many others that say that it needs to be updated as well because it it potentially stigmatizes patients. So those are the types of things that we see, like people trichotomize or dichotomize the biopsychosocial model and want to break it up. And really that was, Engel didn't want that. Like going into his papers, he thought that it was the dynamic interaction, but because of that lack of, I think, robust theory to really guide how it it, it pans out in practice, it ends up getting messy like that. I think that's one of the reasons why clinicians have been drawn so quickly to this paper and these kinds of concepts, because you mention it in the paper. We very frequently ask ourselves, well, how do we avoid communicating to the patient that this is just in their head, right? And we, we do dichotomize quite a bit when it comes to this model. And it, it's the one limitation that stuck with me was, we're very, so critical of the biomedical model and how dualistic it is. But in practice, we tend to also be dualistic with the biopsychosocial model, where the five E's, which we'll get to describing in here a little bit, I think it hashes out and bridges the gaps to those dichotomies and trichotomies to people. And, and 
it gives them a, a more robust framework to kind of chew on and better understand what they're actually trying to accomplish. Um, there's so many things in there and we, we've, the three of us have talked about this paper quite a bit. There's so many things in there that gave us like, Oh, okay. That, so that makes more sense. Uh-huh. Right. They're, they're embedded. That's why this is, it, that's another aspect you can bring in. So it, it helps uh, build a bigger picture for people and fill in some of those blanks that we just haven't really had. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. It's wonderful. That's why I think people have been drawn to it because it, it it's it's helpful to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. What are the big- Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah, I thought people were just gonna like clinicians. I was like, if they get to it, I thought they're gonna just toss it in the garbage. Too long, too dense. Yeah, not really. Like, yeah, yeah. So uh, you said so, something interesting earlier, Peter. And for your the way that you guys framed this initially, it was it was meant to spawn research questions, and then you would plan to distill it down a little bit for, for a clinical practice. That actually makes a lot of sense to me because that was going to be something I, w- I want to talk to you guys about because people can try to compartmentalize, compartmentalize anything, right? They can take these five E's that we're going to talk about and try to memorize those and say, all right, have I ticked the box? Did I do embodied treatment today? Did I do, you know what I mean? Did I cover all the bases? Yeah. Kind, kind of like exactly how you guys were talking about in the paper, biopsychosocial, even though you've got this Venn diagram where the three worlds overlap, you still, did I tick off the biological box and the psychosocial? Did I talk, was I nice to them? Okay, cool. I did my psychosocial intervention. Did I tell them that their parent, that their family member telling them that their knee hurts, maybe not a good idea. Okay, cool. I checked off the social box and then we could do it with this too. These word, these terms that we're going to go over the reason that this paper pulls on my heartstrings so much is because I see it as a parallel to the way that we tend to frame movement and motor learning through a dynamical systems lens. And I know it's in there because you guys reference <laughs> over James Gibson and these these other uh, researchers and, and that are just kind of like forefathers of dynamical systems and ecological dynamics and these types of things. And that's the lens that our community tends to use for movement. And so now I'm reading this as a lens to, to understand pain and this perception and action coupling that we talk about for squatting and running and sprinting and jumping. And now it, we're talking about the experience of pain. I fell in love right away because of that. So I want to, we start talking about these terms now, these five E's embodied, embedded, inactive, emotive, extended. I don't expect you to just go down the list and define them necessarily because, again, people can just read this paper. Please read the paper. Read it again. Read it again. <laughs> but these these five E's, can you talk about the comparison between biopsychosocial and now we have these other terms to think about? What's the significance? What's the difference, I guess, when we think about it in that way, in this new this new lens? Yeah, I think I – think- each of the E's have a huge theoretical base, right? Um, which I think that's what adds the value, right? And we tie in the concept of perception under each of these E's um, to, to really provide this robust type of framework with with empirical and also uh, empirical evidence, but also these uh, philosophical uh lenses right that have been going on for for, for centuries and, and 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 build on those things to create a a new way to look at look at pain and i think it might be helpful for listeners to explain too that uh, to explain some of the title of uh, explain the title of the paper too right um so an inactive approach so uh one of the e's is inactive um and inherently inactivism that theoretical foundation that we've built on Includes all the other E's as we as we interpreted, or at least our approach uh, that we took. So, so really, it's not as much. Oh yeah, all these separate five E's. We could just easily just say inactivism, and inherently that includes things like embodiment, which is another E, embeddedness, uh, another E, emotive, and also extended, which which is a bit more radical compared to the maybe some of the other E's. Uh, so we just, it's just framed in the way that it is 
I think because it makes it easier to start to explain all these theoretical underpinnings. But really what we can do is collapse it all under the umbrella of inactivism. Um, and, and it might be helpful to explain what inactivism is, but um, it, does that make sense in terms of how we laid that out? Yes. Yeah. It totally does. And it also makes sense as to how you plan to distill it down over time to be clinically applicable as well, or more so, maybe just from a conceptual framework. Can you go, can you go through an activism a bit? And, and Yeah, so there's different kind of strands of an activism and uh, different types of approaches. So I guess a really kind of an overview of all the five E's together with an activism, obviously, as the core of it, it really looks at pain as not being just in the head. Um, it actually involves a body with a brain, and that body and brain, that person, is always situated or coupled to an environment, which always comes into play when it comes to pain or other types of perceptions. So I think it really is just, if we distill it down in simple terms like that, this kind of coupling between brain-body world and how the mind, as people commonly uh, refer to it, is actually in the life, the dynamics of these three things coupling together. Uh, I think that's a really simple way to explain it. And people go, oh, well, it's common sense. Why you, we don't have, we're not disembodied brains. Um, we're not a person that's somehow abstract from a, an environment. And uh, I think that's uh, a really simple way that, to kind of get to it. And there's other nuances when, when we really get into the ease, but I think that's maybe a high level uh, explanation of it. Uh, Catherine, jump on it. I know. So, so, so uh, um, the, uh, in addition to what Peter said, the way I've been getting my head around it is uh, th through the way we got here, which was studying philosophy um, and perception, in, in particular perception uh, and the and movement and perception uh, work from a philosophic lens. And so the the writings that we have kind of troubled through. <laughs> uh, I, fell, I fell in love with a couple of philosophers along the way. Um, uh, they they turn it, it, turn it upside down from us the sort of very uh, pract pragmatic thinking of joints and muscles and you know action and response. They they look at it from the experience, right? And I think that just that really helped me. And if there are listeners that are trying to find their way to it, um, uh, we can make some recommendations of readings for sure. But Heidegger is where I really cut my teeth. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, prof that was at, in California, uh, Hubert Dreyfus, and his he studied uh, be, uh, oh time and being, uh, and and taught it probably a, I don't know a hundred times. And he he takes all his lectures and they're free for consumption and it just it just is a whole other way of thinking and and if the rehab folks uh, and medicine can uh, start to uh, apply their knowledge but change the lens and try to understand the lived experience of the person in front of them then they're they're working walking right into an activism in my view like so it, it's the marriage of this stuff that really makes it work and then the other point i wanted to make was um a few minutes ago um you asked uh you know uh, compare it to the biopsychosocial model and what peter just said you know, could be the biopsychosocial model, right? Um, but what's different with the five E's is, and when you do go through their definitions and so on, it's it's, and the way we tried to present it is like one kind of builds on top of the next, uh, rather than being independent uh, concepts. They are they are very much involved in each other, and uh, I think if we go in that direction, it will kind of defy a little bit that okay, I checked the biological, I checked the you know social thing because you can't really pull them apart. It was quite a struggle, wasn't it, Peter, to, to really pull them apart so we could treat each one and, and uh, deal with the, um, the science and the, and the philosophy behind each one to then kind of put them together. So we, so we kind of stacked them. And as you read it, maybe you'll realize that that's what we were doing. Anyway, there was just a couple of points I wanted to make. Well, one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to this conversation, um, and as we've 
gone through it so far, my, my excitement's just been sort of confirmed to me to be appropriate was as I was reading the, the paper, the first, well, the first couple of times, um, my initial response was, holy smokes, okay, let me try to wrap my head around all of these different concepts and how does this change how I work as a clinician trying to help people. And mm-hmm. when I took a step back, um, I think I came to the same realization that you just summarized, Catherine, in that this is about trying to understand the the experience of people. And if we understand their experience better, almost certainly we can help them better, you know, in our role as, as clinicians. I got it? Sweet. Excellent. Um, so. I was, ex- I was excited and still am excited to to be part of this because I was quite certain that in talking to you both, that would have just come through clearly. And even though there's still a lot of uh, theory and concepts to, to wrap my head around, I'm sure that'll continue. Um, it, it Just knowing that it's rooted in trying to understand the experiences of people, experiences of people better um, makes it seem that much more of a worthwhile endeavor on my part as a clinician. Thank you, Jared. You're welcome. Thank thank you guys. (laughs) And these concepts are like, it's a mess. Like Catherine mentioned, like being in time. If if you really want to wreck, wreck yourself, try to, try to get, try to get through that. Like it's a, it's incomprehensible, like in many ways. So it's oftentimes going through other people who have interpreted his work. It's such challenging work, especially with no kind of formal uh, philosophy background, like it, or, or for clinicians, and um, so we we're looking at ways of like how can we explain some of those concepts that come from Heidegger, that come from uh, Merleau-Ponty, these phenomenologists, to really get the point, and even like the concept of relationality. So you hear that all uh, all throughout uh, phenomenological type of work, and uh, we came across the analogy that Evan Thompson used that talks about relations and uh, emergence. And we we brought that up in the paper, which I think a lot of clinicians have said, oh, this really actually helped me bring it all together. And uh, what what Evan Thompson's def, uh, kind of analogy is, is that uh, if we're looking for flight, because he's talking about a bird, he said, you're not going to actually find flight by just looking in the bird's wings or looking into the feathers. Um, you need to actually start to take a step back, look at the bigger picture, look at the wings that are attached, obviously, to the bird, but also the relationship between the whole bird and the atmosphere. And and we adapt that for pain to say it's the same thing. The unit explanation, you're not going to find the essence of pain in just the in the brain or just just in the back. And it's not that these things aren't important. They are they are very important. They're a piece of the puzzle. Um, but we have to look at the brain, the back, the full, full embodied person, and their relationship with the environment to really understand pain in, a, I think, a more meaningful way. And I think that's a way to start to tap into all these E's without actually really saying them explicitly. Well, you stole what I was going to bring up because I'm a power <laughs> lifter and I like simple things. The, <laughs> the bird analogy was, it, it, it brought it all kind of home. That was, uh, that was one that, that, Simplified it very much, but I do have to say as a clinician, Catherine, you mentioned stacking these all together. In the paper, you guys use uh, low back pain as a a lens to kind of come back to each time. And having a lot of experience with it as clinicians, it's obviously the thing that we see probably the most often, regardless of population. Being able to to ring that back in and use something that's very relatable and something that's very common to – get a simple application immediately of some of these concepts is I, th- I think one of the things that's probably the hardest thing for you to do as, as that, as you wrote that, cause I can see it's like, man, I, I read all this and that came across as really good, but I bet that was hard to write. Um, <laughs> it, it helped a lot because that's a lens that I think helps bring all that together, especially with low back pain um, and, and create it, create a lot of context around it where this could be very, very abstract. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I think one of the things why we would implore people to read this so much is because you can, you can get into, get out of the abstract and get some actual context to what, what's going on and chew on it a little bit. Peter was absolutely insistent that 
we didn't simply write the theoretical paper, but grounded it in clinical practice. And so that's why that's why it's there. Peter really pushed for that and did a fine job, I have to say. Yeah. And I guarantee that was hard to write. Oh, yeah. We had a few drafts. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, team teamwork. It, it's not just us though we're building on the work of others like going back centuries and it's it's not like this is completely novel although a lot of the application in, in some senses to pain is novel these other ideas are stuff that people have talked about forever um and even the concept of ease like people like mick thacker have, have talked about that before um just building on others others work uh hard hard work so we're just extending it a, a little bit that's right that's what made the paper so great also is it just a great reference. There's so many there's so many references that you guys have in there. It's just such a great summary of a lot of different concepts that I, I got a, a ton of uh, papers that I had pulled from reading yours. I was like, oh, I haven't seen that one. Uh, it was just a great summary from a lot of stuff. So thank you for that. That's a, That takes a lot of work to make it into a coherent narrative in the paper. Um, predictive – so – Predictive processing, I'm going to throw that term out because you mention it. You bring it up after your historical kind of underpinnings of pain, giving a brief overview of of the model. You dig into each of the five E's specifically throughout the paper. The, you mention a concept called predictive processing in the first E, embodied, and you give an example of how that applies to clinical practice. This is an important concept for me because we get questions and I am asking this question to myself is what is, what is our treatment actually doing? What is movement? I, I have a movement bias. I, I tend to treat, we, I treat athletes. Um, you, you know, we're basing a lot of our goals on performance and the performance are movement based. And that could be not just athletic endeavors, but also physical. You know, whatever your performance is specific to your physical goals, but we're treating pain with movement and the narrative could be just as, you know, strength. You're, you're in pain because this muscle is weak. Okay. Well, then that assumes there's some threshold of strength that would allow you to get out of pain, but that's as reductionist as the issues that we've been discussing up to this point. But we also know that there is something to the process of exposing somebody to a stressor, like say strength training, that, that changes something where they, their experience of pain is now different. But we don't have a mechanistic explanation of that, or at least not one that's easy. However, what you guys explain in the paper or alluding to this predictive processing model and the concept of graded exposure, I think does provide one of these possible explanations as to why our movement-based interventions have an effect on the pain experience, especially in chronic cases. So all that to say, can you go into that a little bit, the interplay of predictive processing, what that is from a first-person perspective and then how a movement-based intervention could have an effect on that. Sure. So we, we I don't think I need to go through uh, our, our sort of standard understanding of sensory processing and, and under, you know, reception and, and interpretation. But that, is, that you know, uh, pressure, transduction, nerve activation, processing and determination of what it is, is is really hardwired in all of our learning, right? We've, we've all learned how to do that. That's what that, or to understand sensory processing that way. And uh, the predictive processing, just like what we were just talking about uh, on, about an activism is built on a bunch of other people's understanding. So this is, a, you know, a product of uh, experimental science and animal and human science um, uh, modeling, uh, machine learning, and 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 learning is actually the key word in in a lot of my my um, translation of predictive processing into meaningful questions like what you're just asking. I I, I fell in love with Hubert Dreyfus and then quickly after Andy Clark. Uh, 
if you can get through his work, it's also <laughs> pretty challenging. But I did read the, you know, predicting and uh, surfing. What is it called? Surfing uncertainty. Surfing uncertainty. Uncertainty. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that'll blow your brain up. <laughs> it, it did. It did. And I and I, uh, I, you know, I don't recommend it for anyone who's except for insomniacs, right? Uh, but uh, it is it is a fantastic read. Um, and what and what he's done is bought brought together a not an awful lot of other people's work. That's the point I want to make on that. Um, and. In my view, it's kind of turned my whole understanding of sensory processing on its head, right? So we learn about our environment through that so-called bottom-up processing, what I just sort of ran through quickly. And we learn about what it is to be hot and cold and moving and, and so on. And then uh, at some point in our development, and I'm sure that somebody has opinions about when that happens, I'm sure it also it's a biological process, so it's a continuum, it happens slowly. We start saying, oh, I know what this environment is. I, I can now predict what's going to happen next. So predictive processing is an explanation of how we've gone from learning about our environment to having more mastery over it, right? To having a, an understanding of our own body, how it, it in, interacts with the world, right? So it's it's that philosoph philosophic perception of first person. How do I know that what I'm seeing is blue? How do I know that I'm actually sitting in a chair, right? So all of these things we learn, and then we start saying, "I know this," and so I don't have to pay attention to all of this bottom-up stuff that's coming in anymore, right? So um, the other person besides Andy Clark that I just wanted to mention is uh, Lewis Gifford, um, uh, the UK physiotherapist who was talking about a lot of this stuff, didn't use the same language in his uh, mature organism uh, model. And he always said, you know, top down before bottom up, right? Um, because that's the, uh, that's the mature model. So as we become capable environment working in the world uh, and with other people, we predict much more than we process. We say, ah, I know what's going to happen in the moment with all of my sensory stuff, introceptive as well as extraceptive. So inside our body, whatever symptoms we get from there too. And what we pay attention to then is when our predictions are wrong, right? Which wipes out um, millions and terabytes and terabytes of data, right? And allows us to be very, very accurate and precise about our interaction with the world. So in a nutshell, that's what I understand about predictive processing. We, um, we make uh, predictions and we pay attention to the errors of our predictions. And when there's an error, that's when we have to say, oh, I thought it was going to be sharp and it's a dull stimulus so i can actually put pressure on my foot or whatever um and and so to tie that into the question about clinical practice and uh in vivo exposure as an example because it fits very nicely um we have patients who uh, will predict if you ask them that if they bend over to pick something up they're going to have a eight out of 10 pain, right? Um, so they, and, and if you get them to vocalize that, they're actually uh, aware of what it is that they think is gonna happen. And then in an exposure model, then you get them to do the, the movement and then you ask them what their pain score is and it could be eight, but it might not be. And if it isn't, then we have a prediction error, right? And so, what the the application of clin in clinical practice is is to set people up essentially to violate or to uh, define or uh, find wrong their er find an error in their prediction, so that we can then help them to change the model that they have of the world into a more behaviorally successful one. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. Before I move on, I wanted to say, Catherine, that's the most succinct and digestible summary of predictive processing I've come across. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. 
So, so um, oh, I was going to add one more thought to it. Just give me one second. Oh, I know, because it was about movement. I was thinking about this today. Um, one of the things that uh, predictive processing uh, uh, or says is that um, we pay attention to information from from movement. So as we move our own body, so this is just our body, not thinking about pressure or anything, um, we get, again, terabytes of information that potentially we could be paying attention to, right? Um, but the model says we have to attenuate all of our attention to our internal information so that we can move fluidly and quickly in the world. Because if we paid attention to all the information that was coming in, we'd be distracted by it and not be able to interact the way we do, like we, the way we know we do. So we, want, we need this explanation because it really does explain how we can move around in the world. So if we decrease our attention to the information that's coming up, and then we put in the, the problem of pain, uh, which we cannot ignore, right? We know that it is a signal that we cannot ignore. Um, we are then fighting this all the time. We can't ignore it. We're supposed to ignore it so we can move. And then we start having these predictions of, I'm going to move, it's going to hurt. I'm going to move, it's going to hurt. And, and we get into a, a, a kind of a trap, right? So the, the exposure model is, is just a, it's a clear-cut example of how to do it, but I bet you 100 bucks that each of you do it in a bunch of different ways. You constantly set people up to win. That's what I used to say in clinical practice. You know, you, you put a lighter weight on or you change the range of motion or whatever it is, right? So that they can do it successfully, so that they have more self-efficacy, all the cognitive thoughts that happen with it, and then you move them into a more successful pattern, right? That's working with this predictive processing uh, model. So that's that's my my speech on predictive processing. Well, no, I, I think one of the one of the little stories within the paper that I, I really liked was the it wasn't a story, it was a study um, on a hill where one the one group was put on a skateboard yeah. and the other was put on a box. And just how that threat perception changes like how steep the hill looks and how, how your brain predicts you're going to crash, you're going to fall, you're going to – all these other things. And if you relate that to what we're talking about here, you know, pain is a threat perception. If, if you add that, then you have to – yeah, to violate the whole – well, you're not going to fall. You're not going like, to – maybe you're good on a skateboard. Like, who knows? Um, right. But it, it's a, it was a pretty cool concept to, to really think about that, like – Adding adding pain and adding that threat will actually change the way you perceive not just your own body but the environment around you and how you're going to predict navigating that. And I, that's – I don't know. It's, it's a pretty cool concept. So, so then it's so – it's easy to step back into the whole inactivism thought, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right on. Yeah. I think that example brings in all those different kind of concepts that we talk about in the paper. So uh, embeddedness, so how we're always coupled to the environment um, and how that shapes perception. Uh, the concept of affordances, so different environments afford us different uh, options in terms of action, and that shapes our our perception. So action, the skateboard example you gave, the action can be falling down and, and hurting ourselves. <laughs> um, and and those affordances are, are based on the types of bodies we have, which brings in the other E, the embodiment, right? Uh, so a common example that you see in the philosophy literature is a chair, for example, affords a human like me, like us, uh, with knees that bend a certain way, it affords us sitting, um, where it doesn't afford another creature that aren't shaped like us, a snake or some other uh, creature, doesn't, a chair doesn't afford them sitting in the way that it affords us. Um, so I think clinical application is how, yeah, how can we give people other types of affordances and constraints to shape perception in a positive way? Um, and we, we bring in also the concept of culture just to really 
if it, it doesn't get messy enough, um, yeah. how that actually shapes perception <laughs> as well. And goes into yeah. what Catherine talked about predictive processing, how um, people go, oh, well, why, why do people get stuck in this rut? Why do they have this certain model uh, of the world? And uh, part of what we say in the paper is it's using the example of back pain is that there's this culture saying that the back is fragile, that it's easy to damage. It's easy to harm. You have to be careful lifting after, after you initially hurt your back. And that, that just reinforces that model, right? And the goal of a clinician would be empowerment uh, through graded exposure or other techniques to update that person's model, uh, a different model of the world. Um, well, and that ties right back into the emotive portion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you are. Yeah. There what, you are. If, what if you're comfortable on a skateboard? That's that's a different perception than than the group who, who's never ridden a skateboard in their life. Plus, they're in pain. You know, it's it's just like there's layers to this. So right, Ka- Catherine, your your succinct explanation there of predictive processing is so incredibly powerful, and the two very exa- simple examples that you gave change something. Uh, change the range of motion. Change the tempo. Change the intensity of the thing. We talk about this all the time, manipulate a variable, but it's so simple. I think that we ignore it because of the simplicity or students, for example, we're looking for complexity before we're grabbing at the low hanging fruit and we'll give these suggestions. Well, you just try just going lighter and well, yeah, but you know, what do I do? What else do I do? I was like, no, no, no. So that, so I think it's on our, it's our responsibility as educators to explain how powerful something like that is. The reason behind why you would change a constraint that way so that it affords them a different perception. So we, we allow them that opportunity for success, which is the definition of, a, of an affordance. If we, if we look at James Gibson's earlier work. So yeah, I, I just uh, that that really resonates with me. Um, yeah, I think so. I think you point out the the challenge also. I mean, I have a challenge of speaking to our students um, about some of the things I'm interested in because they are they are looking for their role in the world. They are they've got their eye on the prize, which is graduation practice, right? And the nuance that we're talking about here is is not that it's missed on them because I, I see that you have some students that are really hungry for that. Um, but it's our job to, to make it interesting to them so that they can mm-hmm. grab it. And and I think your point's so right that we have the appearance sometimes of doing things that are simple and that's a bit of the magician of rehab, you know. Um, but if, if we can arm them with a bit more sophisticated understanding and they can then intentionally pick the thing that's going to make the difference, then that will give them the feeling of self-efficacy, right? And confidence and, and pride in what they do and interest in what they do. Well, in addition, our part and parcel with that sophistication is the ability to express that succinctly again to the people they're working with because... exactly. Going back to the culture piece, um, these explanations, um, you know, dichotomous explanations have been around for for so long. And now, when we have real people in the in the clinic, if we're attempting to try to explain their experience of pain in a way that doesn't quite ex- doesn't match up with their expectations, mm-hmm. they want to be told the thing that they need to do to not be in pain. We're trying to say, uh, maybe it's not that simple. Uh, patients might just get frustrated and think that we don't really know what what we're doing or what we're talking about. So that, that's also part of the challenge uh, in, in equipping students or, or clinicians in general with the understanding and the, the recognition as to why this is worthwhile, but then also being able to uh, equip them to communicate that effectively to the people that they're, they're actually in the trenches with. 100%. Yep. You just blew my mind with the self-efficacy for the clinician. It makes me think because it's like the ind- the individual the individual the task and the environment these are these are non-separable uh subsystems in an, in a complex adaptive system but then you also have the clinician patient complex adaptive system that coupling with the environment that are probably that are inseparable you mentioned that's in the that in the paper that social construct so it's Gosh, 
we could talk we could talk about these things for a long long time but we we got to get you guys back on so we can dig into this stuff a little bit more um but for the 1 millionth time read the damn paper people and read it again and again but twice yes I, we'd love to hear what both of you have coming up what um what projects do you have coming up what are you working on how do you plan on extending this model this extension of the biopsychosocial model into into more research to, to answer more questions um i mentioned that i've got something else coming up uh right now <laughs> so i probably am going to step out okay. and let peter answer that question is that okay with you guys of course yes yeah thank you so I, much I, for yes. i had a great time it's a lot of fun you, you're a terrific group of people Thank you, Thank you very you, much. Catherine. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, see, I see hope soon, Catherine. we'll see you again. Yeah. Yes. Okay, have a great weekend, Peter. Thank you, too. Long, long weekend here. Yeah, long um, weekend. Monday right. off. <laughs> nice. So, so, yeah, we were, I guess your question was next steps, right? Uh, yeah. What, what, what's our plans? Um, so we're doing a, a couple different studies right now, and, and one of them actually is using this uh, e-based or inactive approach uh, as a framework. Um, so we're actually, we've been trying to do a study like this for a long time. It's just incredibly difficult uh, logistic wise, but we're looking at how clinicians explain pain to their patients and how they work together to shape meaning. Uh, so looking at uh, actual real appointments, observing those, audio recording those, and then splitting the clinician and the patient apart and looking at their different perspectives. And mm asking the clinicians, okay, well, why did you explain pain this way? Like, what's, what, are you trying to shape the patient's expectations a certain way? Was there some sort of reason to it? And then we're taking the patient and saying, well, what are the meanings assigned to this explanation? What have clinicians told you in the past? What are you expecting in the future? And really using these different E's to guide how we're interpreting th that study, which I think is really interesting, at least for me, and in, in terms of all the metaphors and analogies that clinicians use to explain pain. You guys have heard, uh, I know, tons over the years and use different ones, and we're finding some are really empowering and, and, and really help boost that patient's self-efficacy where other ones can promote a sense of hopelessness. Um, so I'll give you an example. One explanation that came out of our study, uh, a, a GP said to a patient with persistent low back pain, well, you're always going to have pain because we're, we, never, we weren't meant to actually walk on two feet. So great. <laughs> where does that where, well, we're talk all about screwed it? in that case, so it's, it's all good. It's just, <laughs> what? Yeah. Was he on and all fours during the evaluation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But stuff like we hear all these interesting stories, and like, um, I don't mean to pick on a, a physician. There's great explanations, obviously, that come from, from GPs. Um, and I've, like, I don't mean to pick on any, anybody individually for maybe a suboptimal explanation because I know I've done horrible things in retrospect with patients, like explanations with unintended consequences and um, just trying to be better. But we're exploring some of those things to essentially have these conversations with clinicians, um, other types of qualitative studies that Catherine and I are involved with. And I'm just planning, uh, as I wrap up PhD, looking at postdoc opportunities and, and talking to people about those. So um, that's where, where I'm at, um, keeping things moving. You're, it's you're, awesome. Yeah. You're answering, you're addressing a lot of the things that I think the questions that we have on a daily basis. It's, it's really exciting to hear that. Where can people connect with you if, they, if they'd like to just kind of follow this work? Make sure they don't miss anything. Yeah, uh, I'm. I usually avoid like a lot of social media, but I do Twitter. Like, uh, I don't even know what my thing is. Like Peter <laughs> underscore Stillwell. I think I think it is Stillwell S T I L W E L L one L then two L's. Um, but that's the one I use. Catherine's on there as well. She's not on as as much, but. Um, yeah, I'm usually on there um, from time to time. That's the best way to reach me. Uh, Catherine, you look her up uh, through the Dalhousie website. Her contact information is on there. Awesome. Is there a ResearchGate or Google Scholar citation page for either of you guys? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we both have ResearchGates if you search our names. 
yeah, look for our faces on there. I don't know if Catherine has a picture on hers. Uh, I have a Google Scholar that I just started up. Like, I'm a new researcher, like, chipping away at in my my small little studies there. Um, but, yeah, you can check out some of the other papers. Uh, I have a website, too, um, drpeterstillwell.com, uh, I think it is. So I got, I got all my kind of recent publications up there as well. Oh, cool. We'll link all that stuff in the show notes for people, too. Just quick boom, and they'll have all that in front of them. And I'd say the fact that you stay off social media is probably why you're so productive. So <laughs> just don't get caught yeah. in that trap. We, we can all <laughs> attest to that. Um, I, I wanted to say I wish Catherine was still on here when we were going through predictive processing. The uh, the nerdy dynamical systems slang of update your priors, bro. So if, if, <laughs> if anybody ever says that to, to you, now this is where this comes from, your prior predictions. You want to update those to uh, to change to change beliefs and behaviors, hopefully to be more viable. So there you go. Update your priors, bro. Bro. <laughs> yeah. And I guess these things aren't always like uh, some people get confused, right? Like in that literature, they talk about beliefs, they talk about priors. These things aren't necessarily conscious these many yeah, of these things right. are unconscious right and and i think some people get they think of predictions like in a common sense way right like mm-hmm. but it's not always uh, that straightforward as that right <laughs> i always try to explain it to people that your brain's already made that decision you just don't know it yet well, so that's unconscious that's what they've seen in sports uh, in, yeah. in in baseball that that ball is coming way too fast for you to to calculate the trajectory and to make a decision in that split second it's just the the thousands upon thousands of patterns that you've see you pick up on on perceptual cues in the environment and and kind of throughout the the process that you make the the most accurate prediction that you can and you're not like you said Peter doing those things consciously necessarily it's the well it's a dynamic coupling of, of all of these things it's um, yeah. great stuff. Thank you so much for being on. We'll thank Catherine again. Really, really, uh, amazing paper. I'm going to read it over and over. People are going to get a lot out of it. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And, uh, I know I said this earlier, I think before we were recording this, but you guys do great work and like listening in on that journal club, like, I don't know where you, yeah, like, I don't know where you're getting these people, but like that you guys had a, like a deep, deep conversation and it was really valuable for me to listen in and even though you were talking about our paper i got a lot out of it so um i I really appreciate the work you guys do and i'm sure many others do so just want to say thank you thank you for that john jared thanks 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 for joining as always it's a pleasure wouldn't miss it peter enjoy the long weekend quinn john we'll enjoy it for you there you go okay (laughs) appreciate it thanks everyone